Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have Martin Lucas, who's CEO of Gap in the Matrix. He is a mathematical psychologist and author, a futurist, and he specializes in telling the brutal truth about the simplicity of decisions. Martin, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about your journey to get to where you are and who you serve? Yeah, sure. So my corporate career, or to use my mum's language when I had real jobs, was in my 20s, a long time ago. The the stuff she was proud of. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, the stuff she could understand, right? And I set records in sales. I got promoted a number of times. I won 15 awards. I was the youngest to get a, a senior grade in BT corporate history by four years. That was predominantly all all sales activity, lots of enterprise, new business, running groups and teams for that kind of thing. And then I moved into a little bit of product management and a little bit of marketing. And then I left BT, I started my own businesses. So I've had this gap in the matrix is now my fourth business. So I had a sales psychology training business. I had a sales and marketing growth more on the consulting side. And then I built a social network as well published a few books. And in 2015, I gave up everything that I was doing uh, to start Gap in the Matrix. I I felt there was a huge opportunity in the sales, advertising and marketing world where people didn't understand decision making on a customer's level mainly. So I spent four years researching that, testing it, uh, discovering the joy um, of various types of psychology and science and economics. And without a doubt, my favorite thing is mathematical psychology, which is really the the numerical side about how we think, how to track it, and how to understand it. And that really takes us up to 2020. Now I'm, I'm serving mainly uh, enterprise brands or high-growth brands on the consumer space, and we're doing really well. We just won another piece of business this week. Last week we won one of the UK's largest retailers, and next week, whilst it's not consumer, because I still dip into the B2B world, uh, we'll be announcing a US software business that we've won as well. So life is good. I'm delighted to hear that. I think there's a lot of mental panic. I see economic downturn largely as a mental condition. And me, my clients, we're all experiencing growth. I mean, one of my clients yesterday phoned me and said she'd had the largest deal ever in this business signed off yesterday. So there are lots of people out there. Now, bear in mind, today is the 27th of March, 2020, and we are in the middle of the lockdown during the coronavirus outbreak. So there's an awful lot of chicken little. The sky is falling on our head. So I'm delighted to hear that you're thriving. What I'm curious about is how can we use mathematics? How can we use our understanding of human behavior to sell through this, the fact that the economy is in a coma, it's not dead. How do we sell through that? I mean, the big part, the big gap, I was on a speaking tour of South Africa last month as well. And one of the things, it was all it was all salespeople in the audience, right? And one of the main things that I had them focused on and was teaching them about was that we are taught, and particularly in the times of panic and pressure, we are trained about the benefits of, of what our product or service does for a business. But we don't account for the buyer within that situation. I find that a really common one. We don't think about what the buyer's mindset is. So for, on a numerical level, I'm always encouraging people to say, well, what's the difference that you make to the buyer's day-to-day life. And that could be taking over reporting. It could be making their life easier. It could just be understanding what they need to achieve to either defend their job or hit their KPIs. It's, it's the basics of human-to-human, I guess. Well, we're in violent agreement, I think, only about the number. I suspect you're probably right, and I'm just a little bit off. 
all decisions are driven by emotion. Right. You can't separate emotion, a decision making from emotion. And where I think a lot of sales methodologies go wrong is they try and convince people using reason and logic. The way the brain works, as far as I've been able to work out, is we buy emotionally and then we justify using reason and logic. We go out and we find the evidence to justify our emotional decisions. And you only have to look at the irrationality of all of us day to day in terms of the things that we're biased towards, the confirmation that we're looking for. You know, we look for what feels familiar. We look for evidence that proves our, our wrong our point. And then we argue and defend it anyway. Uh, despite the fact that the evidence may be pointing the opposite way, uh, but we find a way to justify it. Right. So why is it that still, after all this time, so many organizations try to use logic and reason when it clearly doesn't bloody work? I mean, to your point, 95% of all decisions are based on emotion. This is what Harvard will tell you, Professor Zoltman at Harvard. So you're absolutely on the money. Why do businesses do it? Because if you look at how society's built, if you look at how capitalism was built, a lot of it comes from he psychology. And he psychology is not a male-only domain. It's not present just in every man, just like she psychology is not only present in every woman, right? Like every human, we divide these kinds of things up a little bit. And he psychology is very practical, very much about your KPIs, very much about your profit, very, very much about these practical levers, hence what you were talking about, about how people are taught more on the rational side. Whereas on the, the she psychology side, that's more about relationships, emotion, interconnectivity. So she psychology is much more about connecting the dots and accounting for the, the feelings of a situation. And it's not feelings like peak emotion. It's not like really emotive things. It's actually just the basis that say every decision is going to have an emotional basis to it. And if you don't account for it, then you're less likely to win. It's as simple as that, really. Again, I've done a fair amount of reading around the subject, and one of the people whose work I really like is Dr. Bruce Lipton, The Biology of Emotion. And uh, his postulate is that the brain evolved from the gut, and we get those feelings in our gut because it's primal. And I think if you can sell to the gut, you can sell to get that emotional response from a prospect. They get a very primal idea that actually this is the right thing to do or it's a bad thing to do. Right. And if you trigger off the wrong emotion, then that will create resistance. It will create stalls and objections. So how do you develop your sales approach in order to tap into emotion using mathematical psychology? Well, a huge part about it is mindset. And let's, let's examine what mindset actually is because the clue is in the title is literally how your mind is set, right? So a huge part of where I've found, I've trained over 5,000 salespeople, and the best ones that I've found are the ones that can think freely about what they're doing and how they're doing it so that they don't become monotonous. That's quite an obvious thing. We hear that quite a lot about sales, right? But to start answering your question is that 70% of what we communicate is nonverbal. So to your point about the gut, if you've ever had a meeting, and we've all done this, right, where you come away and your colleague could be a life, so it could be a partner, whatever. They say to you, so Martin, how was the meeting? And you say, well, it was good, but yeah, this is not something quite right. You know what I mean? Like you just decide not to pursue it, right? We've all, all had those experiences, right? 
Well, in, in my experience, most salespeople come back and say, it was brilliant, they loved us. Nothing <laughs> happens, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Let, let's yeah. pretend that we, we've heard that. Yeah, so they don't know the other side where the person's yeah. walked away and said, you know, absolutely not, right? And the reason being is that 70% of what we communicate is nonverbal. So we give away insights and actions all the time with our body language, but more than that, it's our facial expressions, our little bit of doubt. So I'm always working on, like we were just doing some work this morning with a really large uh, consumer brand, and we were examining their language. And their language of their marketing and their sales materials is actually full of what we call positive-negative language. Because nonverbal communication is, is also the tone of how you say things, right? So they're using lots of ifs, buts, and maybes in their language. And ifs, buts, and maybes only sow a seed to throw out warnings to the unconscious brain which ultimately manifests itself in the instinct saying there's something not right here. So we don't even have to rationalize what we're, why we're not going to pursue it. We just say, I'm not going to pursue it. And we move on because we make 35,000 decisions a day. Most of them happen unconsciously. So there's, you know, you see what I mean? Like we rationalize right. it but without even understanding it, you know? Right. Okay. So there are tools out there like Refract and like Gong that track conversations. And they use AI to analyze the type of language people use, the pause, the talk, the flow between uh, and the balance between who's speaking and how frequently for how long, swearing, the verbs that they use, all that kind of stuff. Are you suggesting that those tools can be really powerful in terms of helping to identify the, the unhelpful triggers within sales conversations? Oh, absolutely massive. Absolutely massive. Because most of the time that people are doing it, particularly to do with tone, is they're betraying the fact that they've got either a lack of belief in the product or the service or a lack of belief in themselves. And most of these habits, we don't even know that we're doing it. So we could be getting up and we could be like, right, I need to hit my number today. I feel under pressure. I'm doing all these things. And you believe, as you said, that you leave the meeting, you've done everything correct. And yet you've given off every signal to say, no matter what I'm saying, how I'm saying it means that you shouldn't trust me and you should walk away from this. So it's a huge sales gap. I mean, the, I'm always quite reticent about the concept of AI. I've built some stuff with AI, right? And I always describe it as a really intelligent child, meaning mm. that you can teach it, you can teach this genius child to do one type of problem solving, right? And the services that you're talking about, I think, are like incredibly powerful. And it's rare for me to say that. If I think something's really worth it, I say it. If it's not, then I'm just going to say the truth and just tell people to leave it alone. So I think that has a lot of credibility to it. And it's not about what people assume, which about AI and these types of services. It's not about getting rid of people. It's not about replacing people. It's actually helping people to say, look, you're a really, really good salesperson. But every time you use this word or every time you hesitate like this, that's what's costing you business. We've partnered with Gong and I've got a growing relationship with Refract as well. And what I'm finding is their data is brilliant. But as a coaching tool, either a self-coaching tool or to help managers to pinpoint the very specific incremental improvement, because very often it can just be that you say one thing at the wrong time or you hesitate for just too long or you say something and the timing is wrong. And that can make a huge difference. So these tools are really powerful. Let's get back into the main flow of the conversation then. So when people come to you, 
uh, Martin, what, what are the most common questions they're asking you for help? Why do our customers buy? Why are our customers loyal and who are they? Or are they loyal whatsoever? Which is a really interesting one from a psychology point of view. How can we sell more or how can we grow what we're doing? And then how can we move customers from buying you know, one product line into buying, into buying more? Because there's a lot of perception and the brain allocates a lot of different things about how we buy. So it's not as simple as what we think to move people around different product sets. But that, that's probably the most common ones. I'm really interested to pick up on your second point there where you said, are our customers loyal? And, right. And are you seeing evidence that customers buy repeatedly from a company and the assumption is that they're loyal, but their loyalty could easily be swayed some in some other direction. Yeah, um, 100%. And you can find that evidence within the data. Yeah, you can you can absolutely find it within within the data. And it, it, it there's a big it's quite complex, right? Because different people buy for different reasons, which is partly why it yeah. took me four years to figure all this kind of stuff out. The the interesting thing about loyalty is that the way that it works inside the brain is the same as it works for friends in real life. So if you think about, if I just run a quick test for anyone listening to this, right? If you think about a friend that you've got when you've had a bad day at work, your boss has been difficult, who's the one friend that you're going to contact and go to first, right? And then it's Friday night and you want to go for a pizza, not possible at the moment, but you know, in normal days, you want to go for a pizza. Who's the friend that you're going to call to go and hang out with? And friend one and two might be exactly the same person, and that's obviously perfectly fine. Now, you haven't been out for a long time and you want to go and party, you haven't partied for three months. Who's the crazy friend that you're going to call that you know you're going to have a crazy, amazing night out with, right? The point about this is that the brain has this allocation that says, based on this emotional situation or this emotional need, like chilling out for a pizza, offloading about your boss, or just having fun, here's these different friends, right? And then that works exactly the same for how we pick different brands and the products within those brands because they've got a representation to us. So I'll give you one example about loyalty. We did a global fashion company, so billion-dollar turnover, and we did a customer survey, and it had no incentive. And we deliberately did it with no incentive because the only reason somebody would respond to that is if they liked the brand, right? Full stop. Otherwise, otherwise, why would you bother? Right? 56% of people that completed the survey were lapsed customers. And what you've basically got there, normally it's like under 12%. So like 56% was massive. And it confirmed where we were looking in lots of other places where we had lots of patterns that said on a friendship level, what you've basically got going on is people saying, we still like you as a brand, but what you're giving to us has changed. So it's like you go out for your friend for the Friday night pizza and all of a sudden they want to change the food category. And you're like, no, I don't want to go for something else. I want the pizza. That's what I'm used to, right? And if they do that, say, three times, they're still your friend, but you won't hang out with them as much. And it's the same thing for brand loyalty. You see what I mean? So if you change the experience or the product or the target too much, is you can push people away. So they still love you as a logo, but they stop buying from you. They stop being loyal. Ah, very interesting. Okay, so what are the three questions that people should be asking you, but they're not? Well, my favorite ones is about silos, right? Why can't we work outside of our silos? Sales versus marketing versus service in that traditional way. Why don't we understand our customers? And most of the time they don't ask that because they think that they do, right? Because it's all a top-down architecture from brand down the way instead of being bottom-up from what the customer wants. And what does our brand and products mean to our marketplace? That one's starting to come up more and more because 
words just getting out that we figured out decision making. So that one's quite cool. Which is the one that you'd like to talk about first? Silos. In so, <laughs> let's, let's talk. Why, why did he pick silos? Because it's the great example of even, because it's not just sales versus market, and that's a traditional one, right? But you're talking about companies divide up like the team that does email, the team that does social media, the team that does programmatic, the team that does social media advertising. It just goes on and on. And never the twain shall meet. They don't interact together. And what you've got going on there is everybody's striving to follow the same brand strategy and same brand guidelines, but nobody's looking at the continuity or experience on a psychology experience level. So you actually end up pushing customers away. And it seems baffling, but if you think about, here's a great example of of silos. Facebook across all industries has a click-through rate, like the number one metric, right, of 1.61% meaning that 98.39% of adverts don't get interacted with. It's $54 billion a spend, 4.832 trillion ads. But on an economics level, right, the business is saying, well, if I put in a tenner and I get 100 quid back, I'm happy. But nobody's asking what it's like from the customer's perspective. It's a great example of that silo. Those numbers are terrifying. Right. Frankly, wouldn't you be better just buying lottery tickets? You've got about the same odds, um, and it's way more fun. Yeah, or just hiring me. <laughs> that, okay. I mean, that's one of the things that we do is, is for every business, we can take 18 to 26% of their Facebook spend away and save them money before we even look at changing it. This, again, is really interesting because I have an interest in channel, for example, and it really forces you to explore how the customer perceives the experience of buying from, from vendors when they're going through their channel because of the partner experience. If the partner experience isn't good, you don't end up with happy customers. If the partner experience is good, then your customers tend to be much happier. And I think the route to chief executive is going to change. It's no longer going to be the VP of sales and the CFO because I think they have very blinkered, limited view. I think the people who will um, be taking on those roles will be the channel chiefs, uh, the head of data analytics, and the people who are running experience across the business because they have the broader exposure. And um, incidentally, I want to thank you for introducing me to David Epstein's range. I read that since we last spoke. And it's confirmed this view that generalists tend to perform better in very specialist areas. Right. Uh, because they can draw on a wide range of experience and connect the dots that specialists can't. So let's talk about that for a second, because that has bearing on the silo conversation. If you are operating in a silo, then you have a very limited range of exposure and your focus is very narrow. So you're not connecting the dots. So you'll be looking for solutions based on your view of the world, your perception. And what I'm really curious about is how the work that you're doing is helping improve the range and the breadth of awareness of business decision makers so that they can improve the processes, simplify them, make the experience better. So talk to me about some of the projects. You don't have to name names, but I'd be really curious about the kind of projects that you've worked on to give the audience an idea of what's possible within their own businesses. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, we most even though the majority of the work that we do is the 
is sales growth in the market and advertising space, most of our decision-making is coming from the CEOs because we're talking about revenue growth, we're talking about saving money, we're talking about all the connected dots, including retail experiences, how people are, are served in person. It all relates to sales, right, ultimately. And the CEO is doing that kind of puppet master stuff. And like you, and I'm, I'm glad you liked the book, I just thought it was a fascinating book because generalists are problem solvers, right? And that's what a lot of really? the work that I do comes down to is, is we've got, I'll give you a couple of direct examples and a couple of indirect when we're doing direct work, we're just evidencing to people step by step what they need to change about their experience, but we're teaching them why. So we teach them this is what's going on in the customer's head. This is how you need to think. So what you're doing at the moment is great, but just pivot it like this, add this language, think about this design, change your segmentation like that. Lots of direct stuff like that. Then we've got the indirect stuff where what we're doing is that we'll be dealing with a C-level person core decision makers of those different silos and we'll be explaining to them this is the behavior change that we're going to implement across the the organization but there's times why why we do why we do it like that and why we do it indirect there's times where it's much easier to change people's behavior for the positive without telling them you're, you're doing that so it might be, just be a little optimization to the product or or sometimes you're just saying just use this data and that's it just keep doing what you're doing but just use this data so it's, there's an indirect and direct component to it. But a lot of it is, I call it the brutal simplicity of decision-making or decisions. Because once you understand how humans make decisions, a lot of life is about simplification. And how much time do we spend trying to explain that to sales groups and sales individuals? We humans make things much more complex than what they need to be, I think. Very interesting. Okay. So tell me this then. If we look at uh, why organizations are so often deluded about whether or not they really understand their customers. Mm. Can you throw out some clues that leaders, marketeers, salespeople can look for in their own businesses so they recognize that, hang on a second, maybe we've got this wrong? So that's a fundamental component of, of society. And one of the reasons we don't understand our customers is because we want to defend ourselves. So our understanding is, and here's a great way that you can look for a clue as to whether you understand your customers, is by looking inside. So anytime that you've got single word values as an organization followed by a long paragraph, and if you've got more than four of those values, then you absolutely don't understand humans and how humans think. If you don't understand how humans think, you're not going to understand your customers. But here's the reason why those values don't work, is that unless they're a behavior-based statement, of less than six words is what we aim for when we're working on stuff like this, then nobody's going to be able to recount what those values are or how to behave against those values. And the brain can only chunk four key pieces of information at a time. So if you've got more than four values, you're just setting yourself up to fail because none of your employees are going to uh, understand them. So most values are set up as a PR defense mechanism, not as something that says, this is who we are, this is how we behave, you're running sales, I'm running marketing. So let's look at that as our behavioral statement value. And if it matches that, then great. It's just one way to lower the defenses between people. But I think the general thing for me is that it might sound a little bit trite, I guess, but humans don't understand humans. That's the overarching thing. Like if, if, if they did understand, there wouldn't be a billion-dollar self-help book industry. Facebook wouldn't have the best click-through rate and be a billion-dollar company 
with a 1.61% click-through rate, I've got tons of stats and evidence of it. So it's not so much about saying what business doesn't know. It's more about what humans don't understand about how we think and how we make decisions. This is really interesting because our methodology in Sandler is built upon TA. It's the parent-adult-child model. But when we look at scripting, your parent script starts from birth to six years old. And then it switches off and it's on permanent loop. And this is where I strongly recommend people read Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, uh, looking at heuristics. And these are natural biases and shortcuts to idiocy in many cases. (laughs) And how we perceive the world, it doesn't necessarily look at reality. The other thing is to bear in mind that our beliefs, based on what I understand about TA, they're brought up through childhood, but they go back 75 years before your date of birth. So if you're born in 1967, you go back 75 years, and that's where your belief system started being formed. So that's essentially what it says, is you have your parents and your grandparents on your shoulders, and you are speaking to somebody who has their parents and their grandparents on their shoulders. Is it any wonder human relations is such a completely foobar? Understanding people is really difficult. And what we teach is once you've learned how to sell, once you understand the selling system, invest all of your time, all of your money in learning to understand people because they are the most complex and most difficult part. Now, that said, I think a lot of behavior is very predictable because we are creatures of patterns, of behavior. We're creatures of habit. And habits are the best predictors of success. So again, I'm really curious, in terms of the work that you're doing, what are you doing to look at buying and selling habits uh, in order to help your customers perform better, serve the customer better, but also achieve their own objective? So the biggest thing externally that we've, that we've figured out is personalization. And I don't say that lightly. Like It took me four years to do this, then another year of the commercial deployment of all this, and we've got a really complex piece of mathematics that's got 400 different components to it. And it basically works on exactly what you said, is that humans have lots of predictive natures to them. Even though we're irrational and we, and we believe that we're irrational and things like that, it's only irrational based on the other person judging you. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're judging me and I do something weird, it's irrational to you because you're judging me. To me, it's how I behave. So rather than taking this mass assumption, what I worked on in the mathematical breakthrough is I called it irrational mathematics, which was how can you understand how to serve an individual based on the fact that they're a bit weird because they're a human, but they're an individual. So instead of looking at based on mass and top down, like the Facebook stuff, I said, well, what's all the components you could understand about an individual to then predict and understand their behavior. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing, because there'll be people listening to this um, that, where you get that common defensive reaction where people say, oh, you're trying to manipulate people and stuff like that. Absolutely not. The actual opposite of what I'm trying to do is to make people's life more relevant, because if you can understand the content and what they're looking for, you give them more of what they want, less of what they don't, and we st- stop getting bugged by bad sales, bad adverts, and just weak marketing. That's my goal anyway. Very interesting. Really fascinating. I'd love to uh, delve into this in more detail. Your third frequently unasked question was, uh, how do our brands and uh, what what do our products and brands mean to our marketplace? Mm. Do you mind elaborating on that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a deep psychological one, right? So partly why partly why I started working on this business was that A, I'd had the idea, right? But B, a lot of my history and awards was all B2B stuff. But what I really enjoy is the consumer side of the world. So when we talk about 95% of, emo- of decisions being based on emotion, there is emotion in all B2B decision-making, but there's real deep personal emotion based on consuming, right? So every brand is set up where it's trying to define who it is and we're, we're stuck in that world still where we think about logos being everything and logo does have a part of loyalty, right? We spoke about that earlier. But the big thing is that you might be a fan of, let's say, replay, replay jeans, right? Or you might be a fan of diesel jackets or you might be a fan of Armani suits. And there's going to be a reason that's different to every single person about why you like those brands and why you like those products. And that's the meaning that I'm talking about. It might be because you didn't have much when you were a kid and the cool person at school wore diesel all the time. And that's the reason why you favor diesel. It's all those little reasons that that have got deep psychological meaning. Most of it we don't even know. But once the brain locks in, the brain's job as an organ is to automate things as much as possible. So once you've got your favors and your favorites and your preferences, you change very little over time. It's only the trauma, as I joke, of uh, getting married (laughs) or having children and stuff like that. You know, when you go through big life change, does your brain have to reconfigure anything? Otherwise, the brain just says, and it avoids habit and it avoids change, it says, this is my definition of who you are as a person. This is what products mean to us. So these are what our preferences are. So the brain's job is to make sure that you only engage with thoughts, people, experiences, products, services, adverts that resonate with you. And to your point about it being a lifelong thing that you're you're constantly getting taught, passed on parent to grandparents and your belief system and everything like that, uh, the vast majority of decisions that you're making are, are already in the system by the time you're 14. You add in a few of your adult preferences and your sexual stuff by the time you're 21. Everything after that is very marginal change because the brain is going to resist everything it can to change. And I'm not talking about fixed mindsets versus growth mindsets. It's just the practical nature of thinking. It's interesting. I had a very near-death experience in my mid-20s, and that was a watershed moment, and my perception of the world changed. My tolerance for trivia just disappeared overnight. And I think the things that do, if there is something that is going to have a significant change, it is typically either a near death or some kind of religious conversion or some massive watershed moment. But by and large, we're creatures of habit and programming. We don't change. And change is difficult because the brain is set up to largely resist it. And if you want to grow and develop, it's a habit. Uh, One of the reasons why I have a view that most training is a bit like most advertising spend on Facebook uh, is wasted is because turning up for a day, feeding people from a fire hose and expecting them to change their lifetime behaviors based on their habits and their belief systems and their values, that's just not going to work. And so if you are somebody who wants to change, you have to first of all make a conscious decision to do so. And then you have to commit to it by doing incremental change on a regular basis. And you have to practice and reinforce and practice and reinforce. And because under pressure, the brain reverts back to what it learned first. And I suspect it's very similar with uh, brand preferences that under pressure, 
if you know someone tries something new, if they don't have a great experience and they feel like they've made a bad decision, they'll just revert back to what they always did. Yeah, 100%. And what's funny in the modern world is that the brain has not been able to evolve in the past 100 years of, when, of us moving from having more income, more security, and the overarching idea of consumption, right? So to your point, when we had a bad experience, we might buy something that's outside of our normal, say, clothing range, and our friends take the mickey out of us. <laughs> then our survival instinct kicks in. We don't like being judged by anybody, so we're less likely to try something new in the future. And that's how we, we stay being the, the creatures of habit that we are. There's all kinds of little nuances like that. We're seeing a massive shift in B2B behavior, more towards consumer behavior. With the democratization of technology, with the SaaS model, you know, the whatever it is as a service, more and more decisions are being moved out of the technical department into the line of business. Right. Um, and we're seeing more and more consumer behavior being registered there. So for B2B salespeople, B2B marketeers, B2B CEOs, what advice would you give them in terms of understanding people better? I think going back to the, the practical side of it, right? There's a practical side of emotions. It's not understanding what makes people happy or sad. It's actually just understanding what people are trying to get from a transaction with you, right? That's the emotional context, whether it's contentment, whether it's satisfaction. There's, if you can start moving back between the chains of what that looks like, in, particularly in the B2B space, what you're actually examining is, okay, we understand what benefit we're going to bring to a business, right? If we can understand what benefit we're going to bring to the buyer and put that into our system, then you're going to win far more likely. It's just a practical side of what's in it for the, the individual that we're either going to be supporting moving forward, particularly in a SaaS space, uh, the deployment, the ease of it. So the biggest success that I ever had in the SaaS world was just looking at, looking at what our competition was doing, understanding the decision-making context of our buyers. We would do the reporting things like that, simple things, because we knew that the buyer was going to have to stay late on a Thursday night because they had their weekly KPIs, as most people do in the, the sales group, because that's who we were serving with the SaaS product. So we just did the reporting for them. We sent it to them on a Thursday afternoon and we put in the contracts. Just made their life easier, saved them half an hour. Very interesting. I don't know if you could come across Google's Project Oxygen. No. Really fascinating. They we're trying to find out what makes great managers great. Right. And what was really interesting was capability to do the job came number eight, came eighth in the hierarchy. And it was really about understanding humans better. The number one uh, question that mattered as to whether managers were considered to be good is would, they, would the person recommend their manager? Do they stretch them and help them to develop? Do right. they communicate clearly? Do they give actionable feedback? And do they give them autonomy? Now, again, in the sales environment, I suspect one of the areas that is in massive need of rework is those customer satisfaction surveys. You, know, you go to the, um, yes. the hotel and they ask you about the quality of the shower cap when actually what you really care about is the noise level because there was a stag do you were right uh, overlooking the pool and there was no soundproofing. You were right next to the lift and by the ice machine. So you had one hour of sleep. 
then not getting feedback on how organizations have taken that uh, feedback. So I'm really curious, again, in terms of whether or not you're getting involved in working on those customer satisfaction side of things and what advice you'd give there. So the first thing is that if you think about social media, if you think about surveys, if you think about anything to do with customer service, really, it's all one-way infrastructure. And what I mean by that is you could go on your favorite social account right now and see if they're asking anybody any questions. And they're not. It's like a fear system, right, where we ask people questions about uh, in the surveys and the, the satisfaction you're talking about is rate this between 1 and 10, right? Or we ask them about, is there anything we can improve the service? We don't ask them how they feel. We don't ask them about their experience. They don't ask them about what they could change. And when I say we don't ask them, I mean we don't ask free text, open text questions. And yet, it's the number one place where we can get real feedback. And partly it's a fear factor. Partly it's a workload thing where we're still caught in what I call the the call center age, you know. If we send out social media posts where we ask people questions, we're going to have to respond to the questions. If we send out surveys where we're going to have to analyze the open text, that's a lot more difficult than just rating stuff between 1 and 10. So we just don't ask because either we don't understand the value of it, I'm not sure, or we just don't really understand what we should be doing and what we could be extracting. This is very interesting. I mean, one of the things that I always teach my clients is that if there's a bomb waiting to blow, we need to light the fuse. So if we feel it, we say it. So if, there's, uh, if we sense an objection is going to come, raise it yourself. Encourage critical criticism. We have a framework, a really simple framework called Recon. Remember or remind, evaluate, and that's where you invite negative feedback. Changed is where they tell you what's improved as a result of working with you, opportunities and next steps. Now, when we teach people to get ahead of the problem, to raise the objection, to call a concern out. So if the prospect's nodding and saying yes, but their facial expression is saying I'm reluctant or I have doubt, then to call them on it and do so in a nurturing way, but to encourage that constructive conflict. So that recon process is really very simple. So Marty, remind me why you originally brought me in. You tell me. I'm interested in the bad, not the good. And I'm I'm uncomfortable asking this question. I'm not going to lie, but I think it's important that you tell me the truth. Is there anything that I have promised that I haven't fulfilled on? Any expectation I haven't met? Anything you're disappointed by? And those are the kind of conversations that I believe salespeople should be having with their customers on a regular basis. Then what's changed for the better? Well, if you've done a good job of uncovering what those problems are, and then you give a clear commitment as to what you're going to do about it, then you can say to them, so Martin, as I understand it, you're concerned about A, B, and C. I'm disappointed in that I've failed to do that. I'm very sorry, can you forgive me? What I'm going to do is in the next 24 hours, I'm going to come back with a plan on how we're going to remedy that. Can we speak uh, tomorrow at this time in order to get your sign-off to make sure that you're happy with what we're going to do to remedy that, okay? Because the next time I talk to them about what's changed, they're now telling me we have made that progress. And I think that too many salespeople are worried about perfection, and perfection is the enemy of the good. I can't remember who said that, but it's a very smart move. It doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be good. It has to be excellent. And we have to be ready and vulnerable enough 
and have the courage to be vulnerable enough to invite that negative criticism. Because I, I think so many organizations are brittle. They're worried about the blame. But if you're not afraid of the criticism, it holds no fear. My favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. <laughs> now, blame and judgment and prejudice and all of that stuff occupies what we call the drama triangle. Victim, persecutor, and rescuer. The victim is, why me? This is so unfair. Save me. And the persecutor points the jabby index finger and stabs you in the face or chest with it, saying, you piece of shit, you always, you never, you're such a... And the rescuer helps without boundaries or permission. And ego thrives on that drama. Now, the alternative is a wonderfully, simply elegant triangle as well, where you're vulnerable, nurturing and empathic, and assertive. So instead of, it's not my fault, bloody sat-nav, doing my best, yeah, it's... Martin, I'm so sorry, it's entirely my fault. I misjudged the traffic and I'm going to be late. I know you're busy. Uh, would you prefer that I just turn around and I talk this up to experience and hope you can forgive me? Yep. Yeah? And you need to be ready to operate from there. And the problem is that very few people have enough of an integrated personality to be able to do that. So in wrapping up, what I'd like to do is explore what are the top lessons that you've been able to draw from the work that you've done over the last few years in terms of helping people look for those areas of vulnerability where they can get ahead of the problem and the questions maybe they should be asking? So I think the number one, the number one thing that comes to mind, it's a great question, by the way, is um, around the same time as the Aztecs, many centuries ago, there was a, a, a group of people in a similar, similar location in the world called the Toltecs. And they had something called the Four Agreements. Mm-hmm. And the Four Agreements are be impeccable with your word, don't take anything personally, don't make assumptions, and always do your best. And they're mantras that I live by with what I deliver for my clients, how I train and develop my team, and how I look after myself as well. Because the number one thing that I think that we're we're getting towards in our conversations, but just in general, is that the answers lie within. So the reason why the person is 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 even defensive, the salesperson to ask about what the business could have done better, what the business could have done differently, is the same reason why they they fear developing their sales because we don't want to find out what's wrong with us. That's the perception. We don't want to find out that awareness. So if you think about all the questions and stuff that we spoke about, is that one of the models that I always put onto things is that if you think about the billions of neurons that you've got within the brain that make up you being you, I apply the same thing to an organization because the people in an organization are just like the new, the neurons clashing together. They create the thoughts and the decisions and the behaviors of how that brand goes to market. So if you look at a brand as a collection of people with one mindset, then you can figure out how can I coach this mindset to be better? So it comes down to how open you are to understanding your your own mindset, the business's mindset, but it's the same types of things. You can take so much lessons about how to develop and understand an individual and apply it to a business. It's same, same. You can be a better salesperson by understanding how to develop yourself, and you can be a better organization by understanding how to develop yourself. But both of them come with awareness, and awareness is scary because you have to ask, what do people think of me? What can I do differently? I think we'll finish on that note because I I think that's really important. 
the willingness to raise your level of self-awareness takes an enormous amount of courage. Thank you. This has been really fascinating. I mean, tell me something. What, what sort of books are you reading at the moment that are really influencing your thinking? So, I mean, I've done so, so many different things I'm, and, and I'm ever obsessed about how people, people think, right? So I'm currently exploring sociology as a general study about because I'm always looking at what I call the, the structure of anything. So what, what is the structure of a discipline? What's the structure of thinking? Because if you can understand the structure of something, you can understand the pattern of, of the human behavior that sits behind it. So sociology is a big part of it. So reading Nietzsche's biography at the moment, which is an award-winning book, very much worth a read. It's called I Am Dynamite. And he was a phil- philologist by trade. And most right. people don't even know what that is, right? It's the study of language. And if you think about how he made his bones as a, as a philosopher, I find the philology really quite door-opening. And, and as I do with all reading, I've always got a few books on the go because I'm not reading it to understand the story. I'm just reading it to learn, and and then I dabble around in different places. So as an example, I've also got Robin Williams' biography on the go at the moment because I'm ever fascinated with problem-solving and, and how it relates to creativity. Plus, he's just a super interesting guy. That's my books at the moment. That's by Sue Prideaux, P-R-I-D-E-U-X. That's the one. Great book. Excellent. Thank you. And if you had a golden ticket, you could go back and advise the idiot Martin at age 23. What advice would you give him to avoid a lifetime of misery and self-sabotage? I mean, that's just such a great question, right? I would say to him that just keep doing what you're doing, but understand that how you think and your ideas are very unique. So if you could have a little bit more belief in yourself at the age of 23 and accept yourself a bit more, you could be causing a lot more positive mischief (laughs) than what you might think. (laughs) I like that positive mischief. And the final question then, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think making the complex simple, right? It's a good balance point because what I've worked on is is decision-making and you've got two, two sides to this, right? One is that most people assume they know how they make decisions, right? That's the fear, that's the rejection, that's the society's norm. And then on the other side, it's really easy for me to talk about, well, I created this algorithm to do with this psychological condition and blah, blah, blah. And you just turn people off, right? So it's just the balance of just getting that right in the middle. It's that Goldilocks moment, right? Where you just explain things just to be just right. And then I think the other big thing for me is is probably a battle with self, right? So I gave up an income for four years. So I'm just learning how to just coax myself back into enjoying the sales experience, enjoying regular income, enjoying growing a business. It sounds funny because it's all positive things, but four years of not having an income is it actually quite knocks you in terms of what you're going to be doing. So life's going well, business is great, but as ever, I would just want to keep improving and learning. Fabulous. Martin, thank you so much. This has been insightful and challenging. How can people get hold of you? They could WhatsApp me if they want, 07743 I always take the first problem they can send me. I'll do a mini problem-solving session for anybody, no matter what it is. Or they can reach out to me on LinkedIn or drop me a message, which is martin at gapinthematrix.com. Excellent. Martin Lucas, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. It was absolutely a pleasure. Brilliant. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you believe that you could be a great podcast guest, then please get in touch at mcauchi at sandler.com. If there's somebody that you think would be a great guest for me and you'd like me to interview them, then please get me in touch with them 
uh, either connect us on LinkedIn, send a joint email, or give me their details and I'll reach out to them. And on that note, please comment, like, and share this podcast. And please do subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you very much. This is Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling and stay safe. Bye-bye.